Hello and welcome back to the Comic Litera Podcast, the podcast that does deep dives into the best of comic books, graphic novels, mangas, and Penny Dreadfuls. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm your host, the soon-to-be-known as Comic Stan, and with me as always is my neighbourly co-host, it's Jamie. Neighbourly? It's a theme they're going for this month. <laughs> but before we get to that... Do you know what? Before, before you go before, anywhere else... Before we get to my before we get to... Um, you called me neighbourly, it's really ironic, because mm. I have new neighbours upstairs. And they would disagree? Well... I walked up, I was walking towards the flat earlier and their dog was barking. I went, for fuck's sake, dog, shut up. And then I Dogs noticed, can sense evil. And then I noticed their window was open. And so their <laughs> first, like, the first time they've ever heard me is either me playing really loud metal music at like 10 o'clock at night because I was trying to write a song or me swearing at their dog through the window. And both are bad. <laughs> Neither are good. This is why people tend to recommend the, the, the two-year fixed mortgages when they first move into a place, because <laughs> the extreme advice always is, you don't know if your neighbor's going to play drums at three in the morning. <laughs> so anyway, back to the before that came before the before. So the first before we, before we got to your before before. Penny dreadful. So yeah, so it being the spooky season and all that. That uh, was really good. Can you do that again? The spooky season. <laughs> Or, or my other names for it. Scary, scary season. Scary, spook, spooktober. Spock, Spocktober. No, that's a different Spocktober. thing. Spocktober. <laughs> I want to do Spocktober. Next year, maybe. Oh. We'll see if, we'll, we'll see if he remembers, but don't, don't, no one remind him just in case. You know uh, I have a freakish memory. Some, on some things, and I not so much like, on others. Do you remember in September 2023 when you said we could do Spocktober? But you also have a... Actually. You also have a memory of a, oh, did we say eight o'clock? <laughs> it well, varies. when I rock up at nine yeah. looking a bit disheveled it varies wildly is all I'm saying <laughs> so what I was going to get into was because it's the spooky season and all that <laughs> um, I I had an idea and I thought let's <laughs> yeah. for, for the listener we've talked about this off air and I find this completely hilarious I mean I think this is now a staple of the podcast law now going forward so I thought, you know what would be cool? Let's do a pet scary Penny Dreadful because uh, they are, I thought, they were <laughs> very small Victorian era comics, like one of the earliest comics, and turns out that was a misconception on my part entirely. What are Penny Dreadfuls, Ryan? So Penny Dreadfuls are very short pieces of a, of, so like a short story, a written yeah. short story. Yeah. They would have an illustration on the front, which yeah. is, I think, where I got confused because <laughs> I saw these illustrations. I thought, oh, this is like early comics. Turns out it's just the, it's just the cover. It's like, <laughs> it's like the cover. But it was short stories that were, that were then divided even further into like individual pages. Yeah. And those pages were bought for like, I don't know, whatever tuppence was or a shilling or whatever yeah. back in the day. Um, and the reason they were popular at the time was because they were written quite simply. And it was at the point where the general population had just kind of learned collectively how to read. Yeah. yeah. But my mistake, I think, was I thought they were illustrations that were popular because it was just before people could, could commonly <laughs> read. So I thought they were popular because they were just short, like, speech bubbles as and opposed again, to written text. This, this, it seems like that is the kind of thing that I would have known about. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems like that's the kind of thing that would have been within my remit to just know about. Well, I, I think I said it and you just believed me. Well, <laughs> this is the thing. Like, I just, when you, when you, when you put it in the intro and started talking about Penny Dreadfuls, I was like, cool, Penny Dreadfuls. Um, I assumed they were like inky, pulpy comics from like the mid 20th century. Yeah, exactly. Exactly the same. Yeah. And I think I, I 
got it first from i think like a lot of people the the tv show penny dreadfuls and that tv show was basically about mel it was kind of a league of extraordinary gentlemen kind of thing it was melding all the the werewolf and dracula and frankenstein and and, i mean it was the victorian era so obviously I mean, as Alan Moore will tell you, if you're going to write the Victorian era, you've got to make it put real a bit misogynist. Of misogyny in there. But, um, <laughs> and because it was based on those things, I thought, I know, I don't know where I got the comics bit from. We're going to have to change the intro. That might have been <laughs> the last, the last time Penny Dreadfuls was in the intro. <laughs> so maybe it's just a, a, a oh. list of three now, which is more, you know, stereotypical, or maybe I'll replace it with something else. I mean, you know. a list of three punches harder. It does, it does. But it's going to be, you, there's going to be several episodes where I go, uh, comic, uh, graphic novels, mangas, and that's it. <laughs> it's going to be, a few, you know, like when the year changes, if yeah, you write the date yeah, and you, you write like 2002, oh, turn that two into a three. Jesus Christ. I love that 2002 is the year that you went to. Well, it was the a last one that happened. 2002? Yeah. With the change from two to three. That was the last one, because the next one's three to four, isn't it? Yeah, but the last time we changed from two to three was this year. Well, yeah, this Not new year. 20 years ago. No, no, I'm talking about this. I'm talking about the last one. <laughs> the 22 to 23. Oh, I th- no, you said, I thought you said 2002 and 2003. I might have said that mistakenly. <laughs> you know me. Like, I'm a, in our head, it's still the early noughties. I'm a stream of, I mean, in my heart, it's always the early noughties. I refuse <sighs> to grow up. And speaking of the noughties, there were neighbours in the noughties. And speaking of neighbours, we are doing uh, a new title this week uh, in theme with Spooky Season. This is a uh, horror-themed-esque kind of story that's releasing this year. Little clue as to what we thought of it. Um, But it's called The Neighbours, and it's a... Four issue, five issue, five issue run from this year. This is an instance where good neighbors do not make good friends. That is clever. I had something kind of up my sleeve on that, but I think you've nailed it already. Thank you. And just to get out the way at the top, because I think we're going to have a little bit of a back and forth, maybe. We're about to fall out. Well, I think we have some interest. I don't think we ta- fucked up the petty dreadful. I'm thing. not taking a hard stance. Put it that way. <laughs> I mean, it would be a challenge. But so from Boom Studios, uh, the neighbors, uh, brand new five issue limited series uh, from highly acclaimed writer apparently Jude Ellison S. Doyle, uh, with artist uh, Letizia uh, Cardinochi or Cardinici. I'm not sure how the pronunciation there, but I'm going with one of those. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, uh, Letizia was the, we're on first name basis now, of course. Um, was the artist from uh, uh, the Something's Killing the Children. Right, House of okay. Um, and right off the bat, I will say probably my favorite thing about this was the art. Yeah, the art was serviceable. We do tend to start on the art, and I think it's because it's the, the safest non-spoiler subject to get into <laughs> first. But- so... I'm going to be honest with you here. Yep. I didn't notice the art, which tells me it was serviceable, but it also means it wasn't wildly good. I See, to me, I really enjoyed the art. And I think that I just... Maybe I, I noticed the art more because there was more panels that were no dialogue. So in those, yeah. I kind of you have to look at it. I appreciated the, the, the facial features and expressions of the characters. I thought they were pretty nailed on. I mean, I think the... So Casey the the daughter stroke stepdaughter character who gets turned mm. or replaced or whatever it's a happens. it's a changeling of the genre the yeah. sub the sub genre of horror it's a changeling kind of situation i th- i feel that her facial expressions were probably the most interesting 
bit of character that was happening. I did appreciate the expressions of fear on the other characters, like the other, the two other two main characters. See, I think because I, I think we, I suspect we both found the dialogue and story a bit lacking. A bit. And in that, re- <laughs> and in that regard, for me, I was like, well, let's have a look. Let's focus more on the art then. And then I was yeah. appreciating the art more. It was no <sighs> credit where credit's due. The art was fine. It was pulling its weight. The whole comic was laid out really well. There was never that moment where I had to zoom right into a panel mm. to look at it. Um, I never found myself struggling to follow it. Just wasn't saying much. You know, it was just it, the whole thing left me feeling really flat. That's fair. That's fair. Um, in that regard, uh, in that spirit, do you want to give us a brief, brief synopsis of what the story was on it? Yeah. Trans person has anxiety, moves to the countryside. Their stepdaughter gets taken underground and replaced with a changeling and shit goes south i mean yeah that's pretty much that's probably your most succinct like accurate (laughs) recollection of the story ever to be fair because normally you go into the big meanings and stuff and i guess that in itself is maybe not any big meanings here is there well so one thing i mean basically you summed up the story i think the only added wrinkle is the also the other character of the couple uh whose name i forget but i will bring it up right now but she The, the redhead yes uh, Janet, she also has a bit of a taking on the responsibility of trying to keep the family happy and together kind of thing. And I yeah. think that stress kind of weighs on her character a bit. Yeah. But essentially, as you say, they, they move out to the country and it's the, a more rural America. And it's basically heavily implied or downright openly explicitly stated later in the comic yeah but it's basically because uh the character oliver is a as a trans man and has just recently transitioned and was not happy in the the new, i think it's new york was it i think it was like it's new york. never stated but it's implied a new york style a big city a metropolitan yeah um didn't like it there so moved out here moved into the rural area to to get, get away from everything but then it turns into that kind of rural wicker man-esque type like <laughs> there's something we meet of, the witch yeah there's <laughs> the weird local people Wiccan. around i mean yeah exactly so yeah that's basically story and then one of the the characters uh the daughter of janet stepdaughter of oliver casey. uh but casey basically uh goes missing but then is not missing and it's probably something else that's taken her place and do you know what they did try to do a little bit of show not tell storytelling and I'll credit where credit's due. Um, the first time we meet Casey, she walks through to O Oliver and says, I'm not going to be calling you dad. And then the moment she gets replaced with the Changeling, she has a pig grin on her face and she says, hi, dad. And it becomes very apparent that she has been replaced. And I'm like, okay, they tried. They tried to do show, not tell. But it was so fucking on the nose because that I'm not going to call you dad was her first piece of dialogue. And then she disappeared. And the first thing she said afterwards was hi, dad. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't her first bit of dialogue. So her first bit of dialogue was a very explicit reference to climate change. Oh and yeah, fuck, because she's vegan. Yeah, and I—that is one thing I kind of found with that first issue was there's a lot of natural, like in that kind of story, that you're showing what the characters are like through dialogue and yeah. trying not to make it. The dialogue didn't sound overly expositional as other titles we've done, but I did very much get a strong sense of what the writer was trying to put in about the characters like they are very socially conscious they're very liberal like they talk shit about fox news like very early on and rightfully so like it's not like nothing they've said is incorrect or i disagree with but you know when someone like when you know when you meet a person in real life 
and they're very overtly stating what their beliefs are very quickly after meeting them. Yeah. Like, and you kind of feel like you don't feel like a real person. Like it doesn't feel like real dialogue. But I believe these type of people exist. So I'm kind of half and half. I'm like whether oh, I no, like it or not. They're, it, they're like it's a real trope of modernity, isn't it? it mm. They're they're be- they're like believable people because that is the way that people will introduce themselves. Yeah. Oh, hi. I'm a vegan. <laughs> yeah. There's. I mean, I, again, I was vegetarian for a long time, like six or seven years. But there's that old joke about vegans, isn't it? How do you know somebody's a vegan? Don't worry, they'll tell you. Exactly. Yeah. Um. And so, yeah, no, I get it. I t- totally get it. The characters were believable. They're just believably annoying. Um. Yeah, and that's coming from people who are very much on the left, very fuck liberal. Yeah. Like I am. I am a little snowflake. Little snowflake would be my re- my hip hop name. I'm all for bringing back the guillotine to kill the rich. Like that's <sighs> that's the level I'm at. So yeah, eat the rich. Yeah, eat the rich. But yeah, it's again, it's I'm on the fence because. On the one hand, it kind of took me out of it a little bit, but on the other, I still feel like it's it's written like real people. So it's kind of hard to yeah. then criticize on that regard. Like it's believable writing, but yeah, it didn't it didn't make me as as warm to the characters as I might have been. And this whole the whole premise of the story requires us to care about these characters. Yep. And I was just going through it like, I don't give a fuck. Okay, Janet started smoking. I don't care. Oliver's testosterone gets smashed and he needs to go to the pharmacy that he doesn't want to do because he wanted six months of like quietly existing i don't care I just I, there's something there's something about the way these characters are written that made me not care about them yeah i think i'm in the same boat of you i wasn't as emotionally attached to the story yeah but i did but because of that because i kind of took a bit of a step back i um appreciate some of the techniques that i saw but it was very much in like a analytical way not in a I'm gripped by the story and I need to know what happens next kind of way. I mean, I suppose this is the thing. There, there, is, there is noticing that these techniques, these authorial techniques are present. Hmm. But if it's not an effective piece of literature, then it's all wasted anyway. So yeah, there was techniques being used, but I don't think any of it was effective because ultimately I'm in a horror. I'm in a horror. I don't care about any of the characters. Yeah. And that's one of the things that horrors... It's one of the things that um maniac of new york quite successfully did mm. is actually it painted characters that we could kind of get behind a little bit mm. and i wasn't the biggest fan of that was i mm. but at least there we had these characters that kind of you could get behind a little bit and you could understand them and they had depth and layers and stuff and they did all of the things that would add depth to these characters without actually making me care about them at all yeah i think there is a trope uh, in a lot of horrors of like family moves to a new house or area yeah and I think the problem with this is it didn't either it didn't give itself enough time or it didn't have enough time to really build that beforehand, like to obviously make you emotionally attached to the characters, but also just to understand the situation on an emotional level. This was very much a here's what the characters are are in, like this is the situation they're in right now. Yeah, and th- and this is exactly like the kind of family dynamic that I'm interested in seeing presented in fiction right now. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Like the idea of seeing a trans man a trans man navigate becoming a stepdad Mm. um that's objectively quite interesting and that's you know it's it's a it's a trope in fiction that we wouldn't have even thought to see 20 years ago and now it's a thing that could happen and it's something that's you know it's, it's interesting because there's a lot of layers there and so don't get me wrong like i really wanted to like this because i really wanted to like what it stood for 
I really, li- I really liked the idea that we had a trans character presented and a trans character presented really naturalistically. Um, but I just didn't care about any of them. Yeah, and I think a prime example, I think, of what you said is, uh, for me, there was a bit of over... I, I said earlier it wasn't as over-expositional, but in some parts it was now that I think about it. Mm. One of the examples I just thought of was, there's a part where, I mean, you can tell, obviously, through... It's inferred the situation where Oliver has then recently transitioned and they've moved away, and especially the. the I mean, it's Casey. not inferred; it's straight up. It's straight up stated told. in the first couple of panels. Yeah. He says, and- "I think she clocked me," and the, his wife turns around and says, "She's old. She's never heard of a trans person." Yeah, but at least it's there in panel two, man. But at least that's more like inferring from exchange dialogue rather than being told straight up. Uh, like- I don't know. It still smacks of. Hello, Yorick, my father. Yeah. <laughs> well, the bit I was going to mention, which I kind of support what you're saying, is there's a part where Casey says, um, oh, yeah, so there's some like how things are changing. And she goes, oh, yeah, my mum left my mum and married a woman who's now a man. Oh, God, well, a woman who's now a man. No, like, that's the interesting thing. She says, you left mum for a much younger woman. That's it, yes. And like, I, did you notice that Casey misgenders Oliver at the start? But, yes. And then says, um, who's now a man? Yeah. And so for that, for me, that was very over-expositional because you could tell what the situation was. And I feel like you could have done a less expositional way of getting across Casey's not happy with it without her just blatantly saying, this is what I'm unhappy with. She just needs to walk past him. There just needs to be a panel of her barging past him in the corridor. Mm. And if they hadn't done that, but they had done the I'm not calling you dad in more in isolation, I think that would have played a lot better. It would have landed a bit better. Yeah, because that would have come out of nowhere and told you a lot immediately. Yeah. Whereas by that point, that line, I'm not going to call you dad, we'd already know. They're laboring yeah. a point. It's a redundancy, isn't Exactly. It? So I yeah. think there was a, you could cut away a lot of the over-expositional dialogue and just let the reader. This kind of s- seems to me a bit of like the writer being worried that the audience wasn't going to get everything. Or wasn't going to like catch on to everything. So kind of fear of like, I need to make it clear just in case, you know, that they were worried that their really deep, rich story was going to go over people's heads, right? More like that they were <laughs> going to miss the details, the backstory details. Oh, fucking hell. It just I hate to say it. It just wasn't a very well told story. That's fair. I mean I mean, right now we're just talking about the characters and the state they're in. Yeah. What did you think of like the building tension of the horror? And I use that as just like a plainly like well, I'm not saying it was scary, but like, what do you think of that attempt? It didn't fly, like it didn't mm. land. Um, so, I mean, I, I suppose a big a big element of this is that they only had five very short issues to work with. I, yeah, I smashed through this in half an hour. Mm. Um, so I only I've only actually spent half an hour with the text. I actually read it and then reread it. Well, because it's so short. Yeah, mainly reason I reread it is because I was trying to nail on like the law of the horror and everything but we'll, yeah. we'll get to that later so i i didn't give a shit yeah. <laughs> um but so casey gets changelinged but like that scene where the guy turns up in the middle of the night and it's just like i'm here to fix the house and she's like no you're not i felt like that was at least a good paced ramping up of something wrong happening like they te- <sighs> i feel like they took the necessary time to be like here's a guy she closes the door on him then he says, hey, he knocks again and she's panicking and he's like, no, your phone's out here. And then to get the, f- and you think that, that I did appreciate that kind of almost like red herring of like, oh no, it's still happening. Oh, she left her phone out there. And then again, he then goes into her getting the phone and he's still out there and then pushes in. So I think like, yeah, I appreciate that kind of sense of 
the pacing of the ramping tension was uh was was it did the job for me at least yeah i suppose and i suppose the moment that moment where oliver kind of amps himself up to go outside because he's agoraphobic clearly yeah um and then he goes out there and sees her be taken and then he comes through and she's just sat in the house and she says hi dad that was probably the most effective part of the whole thing for me yeah is that sense of oh god they're in the house that you moment know? did at least make me go oh what's gonna happen next like yeah. that was for me a big part but then the rest of it was just kind of this meandering like story like it just didn't go anywhere for me i think at that point it was trying to again ramp up this like there's something evil happening here but it yeah. just didn't come off as there was not enough explicit stuff to be worried about or it was showing too much to to be as scared of it um the fact that they show the the they have a, a old woman who lives essentially next door to them creepy who is, old wiccan who is a, a witch essentially and i don't know i know like later on with the plot point that she is but i don't know if at the start was she meant to be scary or was that meant to create tension because immediately like seeing her the child interacting with her i immediately gone oh she's fine because... I instantly knew that she was a red herring. I instantly mm. knew that she that she was a character that I was supposed to find creepy. Yeah. But that ultimately she was going to be not the villain of the piece. Mm. But that's just because of the million times that I've seen a crone in fiction. You I... know, the the idea of the crone is always really well worn and the idea of the Wiccan or the witch in fiction. And they're often there to kind of make you think of, you know, bad things are going to happen. But actually, ultimately, they are not the villain of the piece. I think the thing that did it for me was seeing that the child, so they've got two-year-old Isabel, the fact that she was just, like, happy to go see the witch and to be around her. The trope of horrors normally is that, like, children and animals can normally sense what's evil. And it's only when things get really insidious and really kind of meta or genre-breaking do they kind of challenge that. But as yeah. a general trope, if a child likes a character... They're probably going to be all right they're in the end. Probably all right. Yeah. Exactly. Whereas then the child, if they're scared of character, and then you're like, oh, that's that's the bad one, really. Yeah. But yeah, I I so immediately I was kind of like, well, she's a plot point, but she's like, like you exactly. Like she's probably not the bad person, or she's not like the evil in it. And then the guy turns up, and it's like, okay, he's obviously evil. Uh, coming back to the art, I love the use of the complete blackness for him against the the black of night yeah i suppose yeah so again this was the time i was like taking the time to just be like really look at it yeah i was like hey what's going on with the panel and i did like they used pitch black for the darkness behind him and for the character they still managed to distinguish him from the background so it wasn't just like eyes in darkness kind of thing so again like that's the point where i was like the art's really doing the heavy lifting (laughs) for me to to enjoy it i think that and again that's what i mean that's that was most of my enjoyment was from the art by heavy lifting though we mean like a 20 kilo deadlift i mean whatever whatever (laughs) whatever listeners version of heavy like we we might have some absolute juice heads who are just like cranking out 60 70 kilos so can can you can you uh comiclitter at gmail.com tell us your pbs yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) i just want you guys to email us with your deadlift bench press and squat pbs because it's a new day. You can be a comic book fan and a gym goer these days. You like, could, yeah, like... Not I that just, we're going to start, but, you know, you can be. Should we, should, I mean, I think we should have a, a comic literate PB competition where we compete to see who can have, like, the highest deadlift PB. I think we'll do that, like, we'll get once we get to a point, because I'd love to do some, like, charity things like raising money for charity <laughs> kind of stuff. lift things exactly so <laughs> like, we're comic book girls and we're gonna try and lift this heavy weight oh my bloody back 
Oh, oh, my, my delicate fingers that are used to turning soft my, pages. My comic book turning hand. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, so we'll save that for that stuff. Once we've got a bit more of an audience, we'll we'll raise money for things like that. But if, humble listener, you do happen to lift, as I say, let us know your PBs. We want to see how strong you are. And back to the comic again. Um, hey, or for hey, the first time, this one. Hey. <laughs> but back to the art again as well. I, I really like the um, cover arts uh, of each issue. I felt like they're always a bit different from the normal art. And I think those those were like sufficiently creepy that... That I would, if I saw this in a comic book shop, I'd be like, oh, what's going on in there kind of thing. Did you like it then? I think I liked elements of it, the, except for the ones that I think was I was supposed to care the most about. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, So you liked it despite the fact you didn't really like it? It's really hard to describe because what I mean by that is obviously it's, it's meant to make you worried for the safety of the characters. Yeah. And that just didn't really hit for me in no, this. me neither. But I did, but be, because I'm a horror fan... I'm like, what's the horror here? Like, what's the thing? Yeah. Like, you know, can, like, what's the reveals going to be and that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I, in terms of its main goal, that obviously didn't work for me as well, which I think is a bit of an indictment. I also think the ending was flaccid. Yeah, I think so. At this Do you know what they did, though? They did a lost. Well, hey, we'll get, that, that could mean a lot of things. So well, we'll, the, we'll the get into that. The very ending, they did a lost, didn't they? I would say before we get into that. <laughs> I mean, generally, like you, I would say you do not recommend this at all, right? <laughs> that's. <fair. laughs> I think I would say, yeah, I don't recommend this, and that's. It's rare that I give that for this kind. Yeah, of thing. absolutely. I think one important distinction that I'm noticing is when a superhero comic is bad, I'm a lot quicker to shit on it. Yeah, but that's because I feel a lot more confident in my saying, like this is objectively bad, because I yes. I feel like I've got the experience for it. These kind of comics, I don't read as much, and I like I hope to, especially in doing this. Um, but this one especially just yeah, just didn't just fell super as well. flat, didn't it? I think I if you enjoyed um Something's Killing the Children and or uh, House of Slaughter, which is the spin-off series, which is really good. Yeah. Um if you enjoyed that, you'll get something from the art. Like if you really enjoyed those tiles and the art and that, you it's worth reading this. That's the one specific recommendation I'll make is for I the mean, art. Yeah, and again, like I, I remember really enjoying the art in Something's Killing the Children. I remember it being really good. And I don't think the art in this was in as interesting. I think or the art, exciting. I think in Something's Killing Children, the art was a bit more disciplined. Yeah, it had to do normal stuff more of the time, um, and then when it got weird, that made it stand out more. Whereas this always tries to carry an eerie feeling by being not quite right or like you know something's off. Something I will say is that the artist did a really good job of capturing Oliver in all of the different phases of his transition yeah great physical proportions and details of the person yeah yeah like the you know the because we saw we saw a bit of him when he first met janet mm. and we saw him as a little boy a boy in a girl's body is that the he the is correct? and was a boy yes. he's a he was a little boy but he was a femme presenting boy yes um so we saw him when he was really femme presenting as a child and then we saw him kind of just pre-transition and then obviously quite far into his transition. Mm. And I think the artist really nailed that. Like he, he was a believable person in all of those mm. stages. And again, I think, you know, I think um, Casey was really well drawn throughout. Like Casey, Casey was always interesting to look at. Very distinctive pre and post changeling. Yeah. Like you can tell just looking at it, it's like, oh, she's, she's possessed or whatever it is. Like it's very quick. You can very obviously see that difference between the characters yeah do you think there's some trans allegory in there 
his this so this was going to be my next point actually yeah i really enjoyed and i think they did a good job of showing oliver's experiences being a trans person and that literally yeah. their their experience transitioning and for someone who you know is extremely cis to a fault um i appreciated seeing this other side like to a fault yeah <laughs> I'm so comfortable in my gender. It's a bad thing. (laughs) (laughs) But it did make me appreciate, like, I never had to go through any of this stuff. And and I think, like, us being, you know, um, trying to be aware of these kind of things, it's really helpful when, like, you consciously know that they, that trans people have these kind of experiences and these trials and tribulations. But this did a good job for me of, of showing it in a more, empathetic emotional way yeah the problem is that it wasn't barely related to the horror yeah and to the, the main comics story not a, yeah it's like he was almost shoehorned in wasn't yeah it? i feel like you could literally cut out all the bits with oliver and his past and his and the a bit of the emotional like uh hallucinogenic things that happened towards yeah. the end if you took all those parts out you could just make like a one issue like here's a story of a person transitioning and yeah. getting to grips with her. And, and that would be really good in itself. And th- and I think I think there's a bunch of comics about that that I've seen floating around. Like There's a bunch of comics that do quite succinctly deal with the trans experience and we've not really read any yet. I think possibly because they don't necessarily fall within the remit and we step outside the remit sometimes and do other stuff. But, you know, this is very much like a comic book podcast for comic book nerds, right? Um, but no, and, and I, I completely agree with you. I think that's actually dealt with quite sensitively. And I did appreciate, so something that a lot of, there's a term now called like elevated horror, and there might be okay. different terms that people So elevated horror is horror more, in more recent years has tried to take modern social issues, but also just issues that are more modern, trying to explain it using the same words over and over again. But it's basically like modern issues and social issues that are then use a horror trope as a vehicle right. for it. so like prime example and the best ones is get out by jordan peele so he took yes. that he took oh, that oh yeah fucking hell yeah. that's terrifying isn't it taking that that white people's borderline fetishization of black yeah. people and turning that into a horror with this specific horror aspect and that worked really well because the the social issue and the horror went hand in hand perfectly like they they worked off each other seamlessly and that's why that in my opinion that's why that movie was so revered and then to compare this i think actually comes <laughs> to, well interestingly actually i compare this a bit more to jordan peele's second film us because that attempted the same thing and the execution just wasn't as good yeah and it felt the the issues and the horror felt a bit more separate from each other still mm. jordan peele did a really good job with us but when you obviously you know, any kind of artist, their, their first thing is great. Their second thing is going to be held to that standard. And then if it's anywhere short, it's like, well, that wasn't as good. Yeah. So it'd be good on its own. But, but yeah, so and this is what I get from this is that they tried to they tried to match the alienization or the alienate alienation of alienation, this family and this specifically this trans character and their fear of prejudice and then they tried to transpose that with the, like I said before, the wicker man kind of moving into rural area and everyone seemingly off and there's something dark going on in the background. There is a stunning irony to somebody who is trans being fearful of people looking at them and perceiving them as different. 
moving out of a city that is implied to be New York yeah. into a rural area. Because you would think that if you were somebody who was scared of being made the other and mm. was scared of, you know, homophobic or transphobic retribution, the place that you would find solace in is the city where nobody notices you and where you are just a face. And specifically, if it's a liberal city, like in these days, you yeah. would, that is normally the a more of a considered like safer hub for people like that. People are drawn to those communities because they're yeah. the strongest in those metropolitan cities. Yeah, absolutely. And then you go to, you know, bumfuck rural, nowhere. Yeah, go to bumfuck nowhere. We, we don't like your coin drive here, my man. And just to be clear, <laughs> we are recording this from bumfuck nowhere. So we are allowed to say that. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I'm quite proudly from bumfuck nowhere. <laughs> we are bumfuck nowhere. Ians. <laughs> Bumfuck nowhere Uckians. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and I, I think one thing I did really enjoy as well, coming back to all this, is I really enjoyed uh, Oliver's, um, the use of him developing agoraphobia in yeah. response to his paranoia from, from transitioning. Yes. And I think it's, I think they, they do very explicitly try and show this his fear of of a transphobic society and i think they again the dialogue it just kind of put it out there too plainly yeah and the and the only time we really i really felt it was in the flashback when he just transitioned and it was his like first time out post-transition with with isabel uh and him walking into the subway and spilling a bottle of of like coke or something and just that little benign thing did like making a fear of a feeling of unease yeah of like you've just done something and now everyone's looking at you and that's the fear and that causing the agoraphobia i really like that aspect yeah and and i feel like i've had that experience where i felt really uncomfortable or out of place like on a new york city subway train or in the tube in london Mm. and you're like fuck i just you know i don't fit in here i feel weird do you know what I mean? And so yeah. it's, yeah, no, I, 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 I'm, I'm with you there. And again, I mean, I didn't like Oliver as a character. I thought he was kind of a bellend, but, and I think he's meant to be likable. I think this is like, again, I don't, I don't hold, fic, I don't judge fiction by how much or how little I like the characters hmm. because there's a real charm to a deeply unlikable character. But I feel like Oliver was set up as a character that we were supposed to like, and I just didn't find myself really. I think that it relied too much on just, empathy for his situation rather than yeah. actually giving him qualities to be likable yeah because i i think if you go back and read this you can't pick pinpoint anything because normally in horror like when the character's meant to be like a main character's meant to be empathetic they're very much given like a oh they're a good friend they're a good person and yeah you know they're or they're just you know having a laugh they're bit they're innocent and we can empathize that way yeah and i think here oliver is is be he's got a bit of a shell put up a bit of a hard exterior that's affecting his relationship so it's empathetic in that way but but it's empathetic in the way of like couples have problems and not like oh it's it's a shame that this couple is having problems because we like these people and they we want them to work out it doesn't really get that across i don't think i suppose there's one thing that it now now that i'm really thinking about it there's one thing it does do quite a good job of and it's that sense of alienation that one person experiences when they're in an existential horror and they have seen the thing and the rest of the characters don't believe them. Mm. So, you know, the um, uh, the Twilight Zone episode mm. where that monster thing is taking bits off the plane and yep. one person sees it 
The Simpsons parodied it really well. Yeah. Um, and I actually think The Simpsons parody is better. So that's the one I'm going to talk about, where Bart, that goblin thing, is taking bits of the bus it's off. It's a, a gremlin? Is it a gremlin yeah, on the side Yeah, it's a gremlin, yeah. Um, and so, you know, Bart sees it and nobody else believes him and he starts to look a bit mad. Mm. There's a little bit of that happening where he says, oh, Casey's different. She ate raw meat today. And the mum goes, well, she's anemic. She used to do that all the time before she was vegetarian. I think I made this exact same note. Yeah. Because I read that and I went, that's not a good explanation. No. Like, she ate raw meat. Like, oh, she used to do that all the time. That's worse. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what the fuck was she before she changed? Like, that's... <laughs> And the worst bit is she went, she used to eat raw hamburger out of the fridge. Exactly, like, the worst yes. kind of, if it's a steak, I can get behind it. But a hamburger's been ground up and that's where all the bacteria come from. It's really unsafe. Speaking as the, as a, a son a, of a, a butcher. butcher yeah. <laughs> but no, but I like, that was the one element of the kind of horror that I liked is the alienation that Oliver felt. Yeah. Oliver trying to be like, all this weird stuff is happening. And his most trusted person is like, no, you are, yeah. you are imagining it. It's not real. Yeah. And yeah, I, again, like, I think there's, this is what I was saying before, like the elements of the horror element. I'm yeah. like, I like this execution in isolation. I feel like the bit with, Oliver in the it, go in the train station in the city just post transition. Yeah. I think if you'd put that near the start, I think I would have started off you'd have empathizing bought, yeah. with him immediately, and then seeing him being a bit difficult in the house, then would have I would have been like, well, of course he's being difficult because he's just been through this. Yeah. Whereas when you see him off the bat, just like I can't go outside and I need you to do it. I mean, he's not like that. I'm 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 you're paraphrasing. Oh, yeah. But when seeing him like that initially, you just kind of go like, ooh, that seems a bit difficult for Janet. And then, <laughs> Poor Janet. But, and then, but then Casey is like, hey, you made me move out of here to, to like leave my home and come to this place. And then yeah. you're like, oh, Janet, like bloody hell, like what are you doing to Casey? And then Casey's a bitch <laughs> to Oliver and you're like, oh, Casey, come on. Like I, there's a literally a vicious, there's a vicious circle of like them taking out their, their, Frustrations, frustrations on, on the situation. Yeah, they're taken out on each other, and then you end up just not really liking any of them. I yeah. think that's the problem. Yeah, but then if we if we'd started with Oliver showing his fear in the city, you it yes. very quickly tells you why they're out in the rural area, but also why it's not just peachy keen. Like everything's fixed now. Like that, it would yeah. it would get across the weight of why they needed to put themselves in now this difficult situation they're in. Yeah. But, and I think there's a certain element of when we see this trope in horror, whereby people are like, I'm going to move because it's going to fix a problem that I have. Mm. As an adult, I think we all kind of know that you can't run away from yourself. And if something is a problem in one place, moving isn't going to address that problem, right? And so actually, they're kind of idiots <laughs> because they're grown adults who think that uprooting their family is actually going to fix one of their mental health problems. But then that, Funny that doesn't work. But then that is a common, that is a relatable thing in the real world, isn't it? Like a lot of people do that kind of thing. Like, yeah, I suppose a change is as good as the rest. I think what would have helped. So from this point, I think we should, we do need to get into the ending to see, to ah, examine that. Yes, the lost that they did. Yes. <laughs> and so again, if you got to this point, like you, we, you, I think we've given you enough. You either read it for yourself or you just listen to the ending without without reading it. Um, but in the normally with this kind of horror, and again the elevated horror, when it takes like a personal issue of the character and then uses a a horror trope to explore it, you normally have some kind of resolution that makes the character better off. So with horror, it's either typically it's either 
um, they survive and are better for it. Like yeah. what didn't kill them has made them stronger, or they die. And yeah, that, you, you know, it's uh, problems it's, over. It's normally one of those for the ho- either the horror has won and that's the scary thing, or yeah. you've you've been on the journey with the character and now they're better off for it. Yeah. Um. And in this, the ending didn't really do anything for the characters, no. but it also didn't. It didn't. They didn't die. Well, it you didn't, could argue it did a lot for Janet. Yes, but, but again, we don't know the weight of that. It, <laughs> so this is why I read it twice. So I got to the end and I was trying to figure out what happened here like what (laughs) what what is the situation so i think one of my criticisms here is it showed a bit it either showed too much or not enough yes and that sounds like that sounds like i'm just being picky and saying no 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 i agree with you but what i mean is by showing a bit too much it made me as a horror fan go okay so what are we dealing with is it a mass possession is the city is the town evil just enough that i have a bunch of like unanswered questions exactly so they, they either could have really fleshed the world out and shown me a lot more and really given me a sense of what Janet having to stay there as the protector of the land now meant. Yep. Or they could have shown us a lot less and left us satiated that, oh, there was an existential threat and it was all a bit scary and children were being killed. Yeah, it could have been the horror of these things have happened and the scariest part is you have no idea why. I the fully love, agree The Lovecraftian kind of yeah. aspect. But so they showed if they... By showing, if they didn't show enough, then it would have been a lot more existential. But because they showed a little bit, <laughs> I'm then going like, like you say, Janet's now the protector of the land or whatever against the evil. Why is the evil like picking a person to police them or keep other people away? You scoffed when I said they'd done a lost. So it's exactly what they did. They did a loss. But here's the problem. Lost did so many things <laughs> that I don't know what specific thing you mean. Hurley having to stay. I didn't, I didn't know that, to be fair. I didn't watch Lost, so I know a uh, bit about it, but I don't... So at the end of Lost, Hurley basically stays to, like, be the new Brandon and stop whatever evil is there getting out, and he becomes, like, the immortal protector of the land. Right. So with this, again, I'm asking, like, why is this evil town... Because it seems to be, like, one entity that's possessed all the people in the town or something, or replaced yeah, them. Yeah, when they say we... You, you get a slight insight into it in that one panel when they're in town, and they say, oh, we don't do that here. Yeah. We like to get you... Janet's smoking, and, like, three or four but, of but them... Is, he's doing the smoking thing with his hands. Yeah. <laughs> in a deeply audio medium... <laughs> well, I'm getting across, just in case. <laughs> um... Yeah, and and you get you get that kind of um, that sense of like a hive mind at play, don't you? Mm. And again, yeah, because it it raises certain things like the the witch Agnes next door. She is immediately gets it gets to a point where it's like, oh no, she's good and she's actually trying to help you. And it's like, okay, red herring. Like I appreciate that. And then she's like, you have to say that she keeps saying the day of the week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, so they don't listen. Yeah, but and that's a oh she's crazy. Oh wait a minute, no she's not. That's the rules. But again, if you're giving me any kind of rules, then I'm like, all right, why? How does that work? And then like, we get to the end and they just say it's Sunday, and you're like, yeah. cool, nice one, guys. But then also at one point she's like, you have to. She she leaves sources of milk out, and they're yeah. like, oh she's crazy because she ain't got no animals, but she's leaving a saucer out. And then she's like later, she's like, you have to leave saucer out. They need something to take, or they take you. It's like why? What? What are these rules? <laughs> like, is this an evil Santa Claus? Like, what are we dealing with here? <laughs> 
and this is me as the horror fan like i yeah, want to yeah. this is why i was saying with maniac i'm like uh, what's i want to know what the deal with the maniac is and i feel like that's gonna give me answers well it starts to at the end doesn't it exactly but it, but it, it only gives it right at the end of the Maniac. yeah oh and no that, in comparison the maniac of new york I, I i i i had some quite cold opinions about it didn't mm. i during the recording but in comparison if we're comparing and contrasting that is an example of horror done well and this is an example of horror falling completely flat yeah yeah and again like i was just asking so many questions and i did the reread because one thing i was scared <laughs> of was because of how loose the kind of story gets at points yeah and the the exposition uh it did it did way more exposition for where the characters are and what their situation is but as soon as it gets to the horror it's like i'm going to give you a little bit just to get annoyed just to blue ball you a bit but they're not enough to actually answer any questions and then again yeah so towards the end agnes has to sacrifice herself mm. for because because janet was going to give herself and then it's like oh no agnes is taking your place like cool but why and it's like oh no you have to be the protector of the land now and it's like it's like an evil being like it's like it's like the vampires in Buffy the Vampire Slayer being like we've elected a new va- vampire slayer like <laughs> what like surely you don't want one like it's like what it's like one of the zombies in um The Walking Dead holding elections yeah just to be like, like who's gonna the, hit us with a bat you're, you're the survivor now <laughs> we'll still go after you yeah it doesn't make any sense and like again because you know I have a bit of a penchant for like folklore and old stories. I I was after I read this I spent like 20 minutes thinking about it. I mean that's how long I ruminated on this mm. comic before coming into the podcast. I really didn't give this much of my time trying to ruminate on it and think of like a folkloric precedent. I was like is there a is there like a folkloric story an old folk story where this kind of thing happens and these are the rules of it and I couldn't think often with this kind of stuff you can be like oh this trait that dates back to this tradition from this culture and this is kind of where they're ripping from. Here it was like they're just doing a thing, mm. and and I, and I couldn't even think of a precedent for it, so I couldn't even think of like a storytelling framework that I could slot this into and kind of you know add some headcanon to make it make sense for myself. Mm. It just doesn't make any sense. There was one bit that I for me I was like, okay, this kind of works for me, and it's a very isolated bit. It's Janet. We think is is so. There's this whole thing with the being in the underground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is not explained but at least with that I, I can be a bit more like it's just a weird thing that's happening because janet casey and isabel all get taken to the underground at some point don't yeah they? in the underground you are basically just hallucinating and lost in this other world kind of thing yeah um and with janet she gets pulled out by agnes who uh, we later discover some kind of protector for some reason as we've established but she pulls her out and she says she kills a bird and she says, I gave the bird your death. And yeah. that's how I brought you out. And for me, at least, I was like, all right, here's some very kind of basic eye magic eye, of like, yeah, yeah. Like trans bonding the, the death that Janet would have experienced onto the bird. And that's magic that works. And I'm like, fair enough. Because I said on a previous episode, we were talking about like science fiction. And I said, science fiction has a little more of like a, yeah, but how does it work? Because it's science, but yeah. a fictional version of it. Magic has this kind of get out of jail free car, which is like, it's magic. Yeah. Like, don't worry about it. It's, These are the magic. rules of this magic, and this is why it makes sense. And on those, on that basis, I was like, I accept that this is how this magic works. Like, you've, you've told me plainly, and I'm like, fine. But with the whole larger story and the larger horror, it's like, but you've told me a little bit, but I have so many unanswered questions, and I don't feel the weight of like, what did this family escape? Because yeah. I don't know what the stakes really were. Yeah. Like at one point, 
at one point oliver is saying to the casey clone who is just a part of the whole evil but he's kind of like why are you doing this why don't you just kill me <laughs> that kind of thing and that's never answered yeah so again that's kind of that's posing the question for me of like was were they in danger like what is being in the underground does do they die if they're in the underground for too long casey was in there for quite a while yeah. and she <laughs> seemed fine at the end like i don't know and then again the whole town is meant to be this possessed thing but then at the beginning the two huntsmen or fishermen or whoever they are find the body who we think is casey but it's actually agnes yeah and incidentally as all as well great shading pitch black on the corpse i thought that was a nice yeah. touch of a artistic choice but like it describes like these two men are good men and that's why yeah. they're trying to it's like all right do they live in the town or are they exempt <laughs> from the evil as well like have they been given status of like you're fine you put out sources of milk so we'll we're gonna yeah. leave you intact kind of thing again just raised way too many questions for me yeah yeah i, I think that's all we can really say about it i made a lot of notes i've not even touched them because i think it was just getting into like the you know the vibe and the story and everything yeah i mean <sighs> So there are episodes, right, where um, something isn't necessarily that good, but there's like this thematic structure that's happening that I find interesting. And there's something that I can latch onto and be like, oh, this is a really interesting way of getting into this conversation about this other thing. Mm. There's none of that happening here. Like it, this, it didn't trigger off any interesting places in my brain. Like nothing that interesting happens here, does it? I I was interested in what was happening until the end. It sounds weird, <laughs> but, that, but but again, because then everything's just resolved. But I don't know why or how or you know. yeah. So I only felt like that at the end because I was still waiting for the. This is the danger they were in, and yeah. I didn't really get that. And I I don't think every horror needs to necessarily explain the danger, but you at least need to have like a a confident feeling. In well, it. you need to you you need to as the reader, you need to have a sense of the danger. Mm. Because if not, you're just watching a bunch of characters do things. Yeah. And that's fine when, you do, when you're dealing with drama or thrillers, because watching a bunch of characters do things is what you're there for, right? Yeah. But when it's a horror, you need to feel that sense of dread. And even if it doesn't scare you, you need to have a sense of what is scary. And I just didn't really have that here. Mm. I said there were isolated, like we've said, there were isolated moments which were good, but yeah. they were kind of fewer and further in between that they didn't really carry the story successfully i suppose they were in amongst enough bollocks that they were they they didn't have enough breathing room to be effective yep and one little bit i did make a note on it's kind of one of those i thought was good enough to make a point of i appreciated the the relative horror of the of casey destroying the testosterone for oliver yeah oliver's testosterone and, and eating isabel's stuff yeah but with the testosterone specifically what i did appreciate there is it did try and make a allegory for destroying something that makes you you yeah and in a it kind of more of a elevated horror version of like a, a traditional death or yeah. violence it's like i've destroyed a thing that is making you who you who yeah. you are who you feel you need to be and i suppose without it you you would very quickly start to regress into a version of yourself that you're not comfortable being exactly so it felt like a very personal attack that was kind of transcended the normal um physical violence if that makes sense and it's a great allegory for what's happening with trans people at the moment who often struggle to access healthcare. Exactly. And so, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people are forced to, to live inside bodies that they're not entirely comfortable in or that don't feel represent who they are 
um, because of lack of access to the very thing that she broke. And he references, you know, how hard it's going to be for him to get that medicine in this new place. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there's some of that happening. But again, so far and few between, there's these there's these tiny little moments that give us glimmers of interest here. But then it's set inside such a turgid story that mm. I just kind of find it hard to get excited about any of it. I feel like I would like to see the next thing from this writer. I, I think yeah. that... I think that again, they're, they're an award-winning writer. And I, 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 I always feel bad criticizing anything by anyone. Like anyone who pours themselves into making anything, I feel bad for criticizing. Who are it. we to criticize yeah. it, right? Unless it's Brian Michael Bendis, and then he can fucking go hell. But <laughs> do you hear that, Brian? <laughs> He's successful. He, it's fine. Like the you one coming on the podcast, Brian. We've got some ideas for you. The ones with shit. Like just deal with it. He's fine. <laughs> he made characters that we're big fans of, but. I feel bad, as I said, like they're already a watering right eye. I don't want to come across as just being like contrarian or anything. Yeah. Like it's, it's, a, but, and that's what I mean. I'd, I'd like to see if they can improve on these, these gaps. But I feel like if we're the only ones pointing them out, then what are the odds? Like they're probably going to keep doing what's made them successful. I mean, and- again, unlike the ones, there's nothing here that's truly terrible. It's mm. just, it just, <sighs> If that's some some noble failures or noble misses. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a big swing and a miss, wasn't it? It went went for something that with better execution could have been a lot better. Because it didn't, it didn't, and I think this is probably why this episode's been quite calm, is that it wasn't that good. Mm. But also there was nothing bad enough in it to really rile me. It just Mm. all left me feeling a bit flat. I mean, this is why, comparatively... I get a lot more passionate about bad superhero stories because it's so bad. And I can, but having read good ones, I could be, and the good ones are very famous ones that everyone's read. It's like, why can't you see how what you're (laughs) doing is not like the thing that we, you know, hoped it could be? Yeah. Whereas this is such a new area in modern fiction, like combining these relatively new social issues. And I say relatively new, trans people have been around for forever, but it's, it's, they've, they've, entered the mainstream a lot more recently yes yeah yeah, yeah. i mean it's it's yeah it's so interesting because the idea of two spirit people mm. is um a feature of native american culture that existed for you know thousands of years mm. but the i like the trans people as they exist in the popular conscious of like 21st century western culture it's a relatively it's a relatively new issue it's not a new concept it's not something that wasn't happening before but it entered the popular con- consciousness in a big way in the past decade, didn't it? Yeah. And they're definitely being uh, scapegoated by the American right uh, oh, fuck. a lot more All recently. All over the place, yeah. Because, they, as I said, they've been around forever. They've been in the public consciousness for a lot longer. But it's only recently the right seemed to have suddenly taken an issue, and that's suspicious to me. I mean, we've talked about this, haven't we? I think it was within our lifetimes that the language around trans people and transitions stopped being as pejorative as it always had been. Yeah. Like the only words that we really had in the popular conscious for trans people were what are now considered slurs. Yes. <laughs> Until, you know, quite recently. I think I'd I'd be very interested to hear a trans comic book fan's take on this. Like Fuck, how yeah. how does this stack up in terms of their lived in experience? Is this a good representation of it? Because again, I'm saying all this like this was really good for me to see the side i don't know how accurate it is yes. like i it it seems accurate with my limited experience and naivete yeah and if you know i mean i've dealt with a lot of trans people in my time and been friends with a bunch and um this seems quite close to the experience that they explained to me but again are they 
are they doing the same thing that this is doing and essentializing their experience when they're having conversations with me to pitch at a level that I'll understand? You know, and once we are far more successful at podcast, we will <laughs> endeavor to try and get as many different voices and opinions, so it's not just two cis white men talking about oh this comic wasn't good. Like, we'll <laughs> hey, talk- that's what they're here for, man. I mean, that is the all we have to offer. Like, it, it's our one thing, really. <laughs> I mean, unless you want to hear from the cat, we are the only two people in this room. Exactly. So. Yeah, I think we've said as much as we can on this subject, and uh, we are wrapped so up a little earlier. Well, no, because it's time for something big and important. <laughs> what is, I'm I'm surprised by this. So, I mean, unless I'm not, but let's let's hear it. You shouldn't be because you sent it to me. Yeah, but it wasn't. It's not modern news. It's, it's like an old clip. Yeah, I know, but we discovered. I, I sent Jamie a, a old interview clip with Alan Moore. And what did Alan Moore have to say in that interview clip, Ryan? Alan Moore uh, basically got across the uh, widely um, disputed argument that Stanley did not create be- like did not create any of the big successful things that he takes credit for, which is wild because it's like an icon of the podcast, mm. the best comic book writer of all time. Taking jabs at somebody who inarguably moved comic books further forward than anybody else in a single lifetime could have done. I mean, in a, he was the pop culture representation of, of modern superhero comics. Easily. Yeah. Um, but he, his kind of argument was that he, having worked with these people, he got across the um, Stan Lee was taking the credit for a lot of Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby's work. Now, if you're a superhero fan through You'll and through, know these names. you know these names already. If you're not, Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko were writers who worked along Stan Lee, and their credit as being co-creators with Stan Lee for a lot of um, famous, fa- most famous superhero characters of Marvel, um, especially, biggest example, Steve Ditko, big hand in creating Spider-Man. Yeah. But Alan Moore, who is doing this kind of public interview, it's like a it's like a talk. <laughs> and did you notice his public speaking his public speaking cadence very similar to Stuart Lee? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But like, he got they're he, from a similar part of the country, though. Yes, and and our friends, so that makes sense. Are they mates? Yeah, they interview he they one of them <sighs> interviewed the other, so they are they're they're friendly for Imagine sure. Imagine sitting down for a pint. I would never feel more stupid than being in a conversation with the two of them. With, yeah, because they're both vastly intelligent men, aren't they? The one thing I could have, because obviously you don't want to be like, I'm a big fan of you two, because who wants hanging out with fans? The one thing I think I would have to like make any kind of like relatability with, um, with Stuart Lee especially, I'd be like, I really like Incredible Hulk, because he's yeah. a big Hulk fan. So yeah. that's the one thing I'd have. I mean, we'd, we'd be able to have a good conversation about like alternative post-punk from the 80s. I mean, you would be, yes. Yeah, he, he, I feel like Stuart Lee and I could chat about music for a bit. I think, because I think the thing is, like, I wouldn't have picked them as friends, but then when you think about them and their actual personalities, not their public personas, mm. actually quite similar chaps. Oh, definitely, yeah. You, and- know, they're bo- they, you know, they're both like expert storytellers. Have you read any of Stuart Lee's novels? No, I've only read his book on stand-up. Oh, my, my life and deaths as a stand-up comedian yes. is fabulous for anybody who's not read it it's an annotation of one of his stand-up sets i believe if you prefer it's a bunch comedian. of his sets like it's a lot yeah of sets. it's 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 a couple of his his sets post comeback because he went away and then came back again annotated but annotated beautifully by an oxford educated writer hmm. like he's an incredibly well-educated incredibly intelligent man annotating his own work but he's also real humble and just really understanding of the fact that he's just a bloke who tells jokes even though he has elevated that to just pure jazz you know <laughs> like oh, yeah. 
Like his it's his work is it's oh it's so good. It's it's pretentious stand up comedy that works. Yeah, right. Like it's still funny even though it's highly um concept driven. And he plays into his own pretension as well. Like yeah. he's very self aware of that. And 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 his whole thing is alienating the audience, but in a really charming way that kind of you feel that discomfort with him, but you're in on the joke because you know it's him doing it and it's really funny. And then he win and then he makes the challenge of winning them back as yeah. well. So but so in this talk with Alamore, he's basically he, he quotes that Stanley whenever talking about uh, Spider-Man and Steve Ditko, he would always use the exact phrase, um, I believe or I feel that Steve Ditko is the true creator, or like he was the main creator. And Alan Moore posits that he says that because maybe legally he's not allowed to say Steve Ditko created Spider-Man. Yes. Like he has to say, well, in my opinion, or I feel, and it's kind of like that get out of jail kind of thing. He also makes a reference that Stan Lee, in one interview at least, said something along the lines of like, oh yeah, when me and Kirby made Captain America. <laughs> and to any normal fan, you'd be like, yeah, all right, fair enough. That That's a Marvel superhero, fair enough. The problem with that is that Captain Marvel, uh, Captain Marvel, Captain America was created like during the war. Yeah. So Stanley was like 12 at the time yeah, or even pre-war potentially even or pre-World War II at the very least. So obviously Alan Moore's taken that. He's gone, <laughs> maybe that's a slip of the tongue. <laughs> but also is it, you know, or was that just him? Is that Taking just what credit, he does? Yeah. yeah. And again, I don't want to speak ill of an icon. Also an icon who can't rebuttal mm. at this point, which is, you know, real, really tragic because it was a great loss, I think, to the community and to everybody who loves comic books. Um, that one of the great progenitors of this medium, um, you know, shuffled off this mortal coil. Um, but yeah, no, I just thought it was interesting because it was Alan Moore news that you sent to me. So I was like, we have to bring it up. Mm. And because we have time left and I'm just enjoying chatting with you, mm. what are you excited about in comics at the moment? Uh, I am currently reading the uh, Fall of X. Uh, yeah, you keep, Joe, people keep <laughs> yeah. talking to me about this. And so we're going to have to do it at some point, mm. aren't we? We're going to have to talk about it. Well, here's the thing, though. So, <laughs> oh no. The so X Men was kind of soft rebooted in a large conceptual way by Jonathan Hickman. Yeah. And if you know the name Jonathan Hickman, he's a guy yeah. who's he's big in his. He is a great writer for these big, grand setting out of like yeah. universes, worlds, and stuff. For me personally, he had a seminal run on the Fantastic Four. Yes. Which really brought into focus not only the large space universe aspect of fantastic four yeah but also really well wrote the characters and the family aspect yeah. as well one of the great tropes that i think he introduced and is now a running thing is the fantastic four the um mr fantastic and the invisible woman they have uh two children i can't remember their names um franklin and uh, roosevelt <laughs> I thought you could say Rose for a second. I was like, oh, an honest guess. Nope, no one's not at all. <laughs> but he has, uh, they have these kids and uh, a boy and a girl. The girl is ridiculously intelligent, like got that from Oh, is Reed. this the one who she ends up being friends with Lex Luthor because there's no one else that matches her Wrong universe. Doctor Doom. Doctor uh, Doom, yeah. yeah. But so that is a trope is that they speak to Doctor Doom and Doom actually being one of the most evil characters in, in Marvel, in the universe, actually likes talking to val val richards um and they have a kind of they develop a bit of a relationship of just like not even quite mentor mentee but like doom is such an intelligent character and he knows he's intelligent but val is possibly the most intelligent character she's smarter mm. than reed richards 
Um, so Doom likes this kind of like speaking to someone finally on his level kind of thing, though he would never admit that someone is on his level, but he still, you can tell he tacitly enjoys it. And that's a super interesting character trope. And when you told me about it, it put me right in mind of Negan and Carl. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I know I know that wasn't a super intelligence thing, but it was an attitudinal thing. Yeah. Like Carl's a little bit of a nutcase. <laughs> yeah. And it, what that does as well, Fantastic Four, really brings into focus the fact that Doom and Richards, I mean, they the most canons, they, they were friends university. Yeah. But then Doom basically gets super jealous of Richards because he knows that Richards is smarter than him. Yeah. And then they become enemies. And you can tell that with with Doom actually getting on with and liking Val Richards, God, I hope that's her name or I've just got that wrong. Um, someone's screaming at the podcast if I've got Comic it wrong. gmail.com. Yeah. <laughs> you know where to tell us. But what it says to me and I think a lot of readers is that it reinforces the idea that Doom and Reed Richards should be friends. Yeah. They are so similar. And it's it's Doom's own um, vanity and delusions of grandeur, which is interesting because he is one of the most intelligent people and is, like, and is a king of his country and all that. And it's it's an interesting trope that runs through comic books particularly in the x-men because you've mm. got magneto and charles xavier but then also to a lesser degree you've got bruce banner and whoever plays sasquatch plays sasquatch a, yeah um that's a lesser known one like definitely that was unique to the hulk specifically and not kind of as well known yeah but it's that same vibe yeah. isn't it it's a good idea. one with comics of like here's someone who's similar to them and they kind of bounce and reflect to the character off and well that kind they of were thing. friends and now they're not kind of thing and it's you know it runs through comics i mean to a, to a certain degree, um, Spider-Man and a lot of his villains, one of his villains was, the Green Goblin was like his best mate's dad or something. Yes, Norman Osborn, yeah. Yeah, Norman Osborn. Real superhero fans are like <laughs> screaming at the screen now, like, why have I you mean, got this idiot talking I'm about getting, comic books? I'm getting stuff wrong and they're, they're probably <laughs> more angry at me than you. <laughs> but There's so, an expectation that I don't know. <laughs> the problem with the X-Men and Hickman's run is, if you were reading, if you were an X-Men fan before, what he did re- rejuvenating the the characters in their world within the universe yeah. was such a breath of fresh air but also like high quality like writing yeah the problem is that it's kind of impenetrable if you don't know all the stuff beforehand yeah so the way it starts is it starts with a character uh, a character who's in the x-men universe but is a human yeah called moira taggart or mctaggart yeah and she's kind of a on-off love interest with charles xavier right okay it turns out in this X-Men run, when he reboots it with, I think it was called X something. F um, oh God, I can't remember the names Deus of the titles. Some X Machina. <laughs> something with an X in. <laughs> but it basically transpires. It goes way into the future, like thousands of years into the future. Yeah. Because what it turns out is Moira actually is a mutant. But right. her mutant power is the power of reincarnation, which basically means when she dies, she is psychically sent back to her yeah. birth with all the previous life so that's my kink so <laughs> i'm but like 100 that's just what i want so they go thousands of years into the future because what's happening is humans make anti-mutant robots yeah. and ai which then supplants them uh, and it becomes mutants versus ai we're already starting to see we're already starting to see you know how every, every generation of comic books has what they think to be the biggest existential threat to be yeah so like in the in the 40s it was like um genetically altered stuff mm. um and then the we spider-man reference at what the spider is, is yeah it and, and it's genetically altered yeah so we had genetic gm and gm was a big buzzword for a long time genetically modified 
and then radioactive and now we're getting ai mm. being that big existential buzzword i love that yeah like because it's so cyclical isn't mm. it so then what happened is because moira's lived this thousands of years into the future yeah. life she then dies and you see the death like thousands of years later she goes back and then she basically goes to xavier she's like hey read my mind yeah and xavier reads her mind and goes oh shit like what's all this and then she's like right such a nice use of his powers yeah and he's like, she's like with my knowledge right we are going to you me and magneto we need to so we, you two need to just come together and like sort it out right so now. we can build this thing and what's great is it, it starts with this Krakoan society where yeah. there's a kind of living island from another dimension. Yeah. This is where we start getting into being very impetual because this is new stuff that, yeah. at this point. But I'm like, I'm up for it. Like, let's go. They basically establish themselves as an independent country of yeah. mutant society. And what this becomes is the uh, philosophies of Xavier and Magneto meeting in the middle. Yeah. So whereas they were enemies because they had such different beliefs, like opposite beliefs, they come together in this like so xavier's always like we need to work with mankind and you know integrate with them he's the martin luther king to magneto's uh malcolm x essentially that's a big fucking statement for a white man well <laughs> i mean to be x-men the x-men uh, the whole x-men trope was built off the idea of racism but it was yeah, built off the, was, the racism it? of superpowered people as opposed to black people by the way so. just to intersect if you had an x-men comic comic right and you had a really misogynistic x-man who saved the day the issue could be called Deus Ex Meninist. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> I've been sitting on that for like 20 minutes. <laughs> there was also a trans comedian who I saw in London who had a great joke about the fact that she was a Marvel superhero because she was next man. And That's, that's really just great, great. wordplay. Like, that's really great. Yeah. But, um, so no, it sounds like a really interesting run, but this is the problem with it. And I think this is the problem with it in context here is that it would need to be a multi-episode run that we did on it, wouldn't it? Because it's so dense. Like, even just hearing you talk about it now, I've cut you off. Yeah. Like, a quarter of the way through what you needed to say, because, like, this isn't an X-Man episode. But also, it's interesting, but there's Mm. a lot of it. So there is a series, a limited series, that kind of started the reboot. So they did limited series, and then it was, like, X-Men number one, we're now doing the ongoing ones we could potentially do that limited series. So that's like mm. the reboot series, essentially. I, that's kind of limited in itself, like it's its own series. I think that would be fascinating to get your take right, on yeah, not yeah. knowing any of the stuff, or at least beyond what I've told you about. But yeah, I'm reading, I'm reading now Fall of X. This is the part where Jonathan Hickman's actually no longer in it. Right, okay. But it's been taken over by a few different writers who are doing different Season aspects. Season five of Community, baby. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> but it's going well. It's, it's generally, it's, it's got... Season it's five in good of hands. Community was pretty good. Or is it four? Which, which season is the, it that he wasn't The Gas on? League series. I, I, it's four or five, I think. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about there, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, but, but this has gone, I think, a little better than than that to be fair one of the writers who's taken over part of is al ewing from the immortal hulk series so he which i liked didn't i yeah yeah you enjoyed it (laughs) i can't remember i remember talking about it i don't remember if i liked it or not yeah and the other one is a uh comic writer called kieran gillen who i've read a few things from why Um, do i recognize that name i i so i'm genuinely looking up right now to see if he's done a series that we have done or not yeah um which i'm just now looking through i mean it's hard to remember because we're like what nearly 40 episodes in now or something uh, yep, almost forty episodes of uh, of this podcast. It's wild, man. But Kieran Gillen, he's he's done some good stuff. Uh, one of his that I really liked was a series called Die, and it was the it was kind of 
Dungeons and Dragons meets with, Jumanji yeah. where they were sucked in and that was very well written. Have we talked about that yet? I don't know, but that's a great one and that has a great trans allegory in that as well because yeah. one of the characters is a man who plays as a female character yeah, yeah, yeah. and that comes into whole like him feeling more comfortable as the female character in the world and stuff. That's a really astutely noticed feature of D&D which is that actually a lot of young trans people do that. <laughs> mm. Like, you know, it's a fantasy world that you create for yourself. And so you go into it to experience other things. And if that's something you want to experience, it's a really convenient way of doing that. Um, so that's actually a really like astute observation by that writer. Think I think I've found the one that Kieran Gillen wrote that we read. I'm just going <laughs> to Google it to confirm. So two seconds. So he wrote yeah. the 2015 Darth Vader comic. Oh, the one that we both really enjoyed. Exactly. Yes. That was I so knew good. there was one there. Yeah. That's where I know the name yeah. from. Oh, so, that was sick. So he's now the kind of main X-Men writer now, along with Al Ewing doing a lot of the other titles around it as well. And with some other writers who I don't think I've read anything of or I haven't noticed yet. But those were the two names that I was like, oh, these guys, they know what they're doing. Like, it's in good hands. So, yeah, we'll do something X-Men related at some point. There'll be some X-Men stuff come out, like, at some point. Because we've not, have we? Not yet. And I think the reason is, like, a lot of stuff we've done is tie-ins for things. Yeah. The X-Men, they're the Fox-owned movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's now a whole thing, Dis- isn't it? Well, they're now owned by Disney, so they oh, are, are they? going to do... Yeah, so they're going to do some X-Men stuff. Are they bringing it into the MCU, then? So, it's kind of assumed they will, because inevitably... But what, it there's not a lot of synergy there, though, is there? Well, so what we don't know right now is whether they're going to reboot the MCU first. Oh, fuck. Are they already there? They might. I, I think they're considering it. The talks have been had, like, undoubtedly. God, does that mean we have to go through a whole new set of, like, retellings of origin stories? Uh, Maybe. I mean, if they're smart, they won't. Post-Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man would yeah. be weird. <laughs> a, a different actor playing them. Well, this like, is it. This yeah. is what I mean. Yeah, like, because Iron Man's kind of gone now. Like, the Iron Man's not... I mean, again, I'm not that up on the MCU, but he did a die, didn't he? He he did, in fact, do a die, yes. He did, he did a pretty big die as well. It was a notable die, I yes. feel like you and I were in the cinema together watching that one. No, no, not that one. I saw an Avengers film with you. I don't think so. Yeah, we did. I do, which, do you remember which one? It was you, me, and our friend, um, you're going to have to bleep his name out. Uh, maybe a uh, was it like Winter Soldier? Like no, way back it was in the an day? Avengers one. Because I remember nudging you a lot and being like, "Who's that?" <laughs> and you got really who, frustrated with the old, me. The old Simpsons. Who's that guy? <laughs> what that guy say when I asked who's that guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah like I tell I, you one one thing. When <laughs> I do you not remember this? I don't think we did, and we're gonna have to like get into this off the air to like proper get like names and dates and stuff. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure we didn't. But um, it might have been Infinity War. No, I definitely saw that before I moved back. It was one of the Avengers films that came out while this is you were probably not knowledge. entertaining listing. No, 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 it's like, not. No, it's not. When did we do that thing? Was yeah, it before you could just the edit other this thing? Chunk out. Or, well, we've, we've done a funny now, so it's kind of saved <laughs> it for this part. But one thing I'll finish on is that um, when I went to see Winter Soldier, yeah. I saw it with the aforementioned friend who I believed out earlier. But this was kind of a big moment for me of like, I always need I always need to go to the toilet like midway through a film. Yeah. Like I can't do if I especially if I'm drinking a drink, which I love a big cold soft drink with yeah, a film. Yeah, yeah. Like I can't make a full hour. Like let alone an hour and a half, two hours, wherever they are. Do you remember so, when we went to see 
um, the second Spider-Man animated film. That I made it through. And we just got those monstrously big Diet Cokes. They were like three pints or something. And that film was so good that (sighs) I didn't even notice. Yeah, because we both bolted out at the end and we were like, just fuck, 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 fuck. (laughs) Come back for the post-credit scene. Like That was a great film. That was. But so watching Winter Soldier, and one of the big things in that is that Nick Fury dies early on, mm. right? And then there was a big fight scene, big highway fight scene, really great, like generally great film. And the fight scene ends, like big chase scene, all that kind of ends. So I go, right, it's all stopped now. It's going to be a bit of slow stuff until the next big scene. So I'm going to run quickly and come back. And I go and come back. And when I come back, Nick Fury's alive again. <laughs> and I don't know how. So I turn to my friend and go, how is Nick Fury back? And he literally goes, I have no idea. I, I wasn't really paying attention. I'm like, jeez, <laughs> Christ. Like, I left you here as yeah, tribute. <laughs> what are you good for if not this? And it was that was my kind of like Joker origin story where I was like, <laughs> I will never leave mid-film again if I can help it. Like, so oh, yeah, that's that's the story. Maybe that'll be a short. Maybe that'll that's I can put some Captain America uh, Winter Soldier stuff in the background for yeah, that. We can so, do that. Yeah, that'll be one. Well, it's been lovely to just have a chat with you on air. Yeah. I mean, we, we don't, normally we, we get quite dense, like, comics that we talk a lot about. Yeah. And this one, uh, it, just, it didn't meet the usual it expectations. So, it wasn't so yeah. much. And that, that's okay. That'll happen sometimes. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, as has been referenced multiple times during this podcast, if you want to send us an email, comicliterate.gmail.com. We love to hear from you. And if it's particularly egregious, we'll read it out. Absolutely. Uh, if you want to review it, just review it. Just even if it's offensive, five stars, baby. That's all we want. I mean, we'll bleep out like specific like words that we don't want on the podcast, but we'll get your sentiment across. Like, yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you very much for listening. Watch the shorts. Good night. Thank you. Goodbye. Ooh, spooky season. I almost <laughs> forgot that. <laughs> spooky season, motherfuckers.